electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. You know I'm going to say it. Don't get caught in the soft landing trap. Stocks have put in a stellar month, but our market guest is here to say don't get too caught up in the hype, especially in some areas in particular. He joins us to talk about what he means and where he's finding opportunity right now. Instead, he's got three names in particular. Plus, one industry where AI has absolutely taken off is actually real estate. And there's one name uniquely positioned at the intersection of these two fields. And the CEO joins us ahead today with a stock up 20% in the past two months. And we're halfway through earnings season with some exciting names still on deck. We've got bellwethers in tech, industrials, and a battleground consumer space all on deck for the morning. We'll tell you what to watch and how to position into those prints. But first, so glad he's here. It would be would be weird if I was back and then you were gone, Don. And I'm so happy that you're back because we have missed you. We tried to hold down the fort as best we could while you were gone. <laughs> big moves today, by yes, the way. Yes, big, big moves. Not so much, but they are at least thematically important, Kelly. And I'll tell you why. If you take a look right now at the overall picture for the markets, we have lost some momentum. But to be fair, even at the highs of our session so far, we were just fractionally and even maybe not even that marginally to the upside overall. We are now just marginally to the downside, just about flat, maybe just slightly negative for the Dow Industrials, off about maybe one-tenth of 1%, 35,444. The S&P 4577 is your last trade there, off about one-tenth of 1%. And the Nasdaq Composite off a similar amount, just about 10 points to the downside, 14,306. That does not take away... From what Kelly was just saying, it's been a pretty banner month for the markets overall. The month of July, as of right now, has seen every single sector in the S&P 500 to the upside, led by these three key ones, and we can kind of know what they are thematically speaking. Energy, because of rising fuel prices and energy prices overall. Communication services, think about all those reports, especially from the likes of Meta, which have been driving things to the upside there. And then financials, those bank earnings that really kicked off the earnings season, they were generally positive as well. Those three, your top performing sectors for the month of July so far, we'll see if that sticks around. But again, every single sector to the upside. Healthcare was the big laggard, only up about one half of 1%. And the stocks you got to watch, Apple and Amazon, we've talked about them a lot. They're both reporting earnings later on this week. Amazon and Apple, over the course of this last year-to-date period, Amazon's up 58%, Apple about 51%. Apple is, by the way, near its record highs right now. Amazon's still a decent amount below those that we saw during the pandemic. But what's important here, if you look at these two stocks, they are going to drive a lot of the market narrative, Kelly. Why? Because roughly 11% of the entire S&P 500 is those two stocks alone. And it's even more so, Kelly, it's call it around maybe 17% when it comes to the overall NASDAQ 100. So keep an eye on those names, Amazon, Apple. Later on this week, I'll send things back over. It will be a big week. Dom, thank you very much. And it's now consensus that we'll have a soft landing if we have a landing at all. Is it consensus? Let's ask Steve Leisman. He's got all the details and our new CNBC rapid update. What are the number say steve well first i want to start off with a lesson in uh, uh driving an airplane or flying an airplane you can't land kelly if you don't slow down 
and surprisingly strong consumer spending and income uh, reports last week have economists sharply boosting their outlook for economic growth for the third quarter. So no landing there. The CBC rapid update showing economists raising the opening forecast for the third quarter to a trend like 1.7 percent. And that's up from a stall speed of 0.3 percent from the June survey. This would be a uh, the third quarter in a row at or around trend, and it follows a pattern where forecasts have continuously underestimated U.S. economic strength. The slowdown has now been pushed ahead again, this time to the fourth quarter of this year. A warning, it's early in the quarter, there isn't much data, and the forecast will be revised sharply as the data come in. But the way GDP is calculated, consumers don't need to raise their spending in the rest of the quarter very much at all for spending to end up being healthy because June was so strong. The forecasters in this survey, though, are closer and are more consistent when it comes to their inflation outlook. As of now, they see inflation coming in at 4.2 this quarter, dropping slowly to 2.9 for the first quarter of next year. One result of declining inflation, year-over-year growth in real disposable income or disposable personal income now above pre-pandemic levels. So consumers should have the ability, Kelly, to continue spending, despite, of course, some challenges ahead. Yep, and that's where it was interesting to hear, you know, various comments, uh, especially from Ira Robbins over at Valley. You know, Peter Bookvar was highlighting that this morning, but he's talking a lot about how different loan demand is now than it was before, and it's not that strong, you know. So we'll spin this out six months, and I still think it, we could have a bigger impact to the economy than, than we can sort of expect uh, to see right now. You know, I, I think that's possible. Um, uh, certainly lending uh, will be challenged by higher rates as well as uh, banks tightening credit standards. We get the senior loan officer survey at two o'clock. We'll be looking at that. That'll be an important factor here. Um, but but the pattern is kind of unmistakable, Kelly, in that what's been happening here, I think, is that they've been underestimating the strength of the consumer and overestimating how much impact both higher interest rates from the Fed and inflation are having on the bottom line of real growth. We'll see if that continues. Maybe eventually they get it right with this fourth quarter and first quarter of 24 slowdown now built in. But for three quarters running now, we've been running at or around trend. And what's interesting about that, we can have a discussion about one of these days, Kelly, on the Phillips curve. But we've had trend growth and inflation declining. Now you explain that. Yeah, right. No, I've seen a lot of people saying this is it. It's, you know, the idea that a strong labor market is necessarily inflationary, like we should put that idea to bed. But right. it makes sense right. to me intuitively. And we saw during COVID that at some point, if you create enough excess demand, you will see wages go up. It's just maybe the demand this time around is more sustainable. It, it, it could be. And that's why I like the idea of real disposable income. Imagine you know, your wages went up uh, uh, by a large amount or, or by a decent amount of 5%. Inflation was higher. Now inflation came down and you've held on to those wage gains. So your disposable or real disposable income is now higher. So we'll see what happens. Government spending has been helping um, as well as some of the savings left over from the um, uh, from the pandemic. And you do have those student loan payments starting up. But I think the thing here, uh, Kelly, that needs to figure out, I think it's important for investors don't confuse something that ends up being a drag on the economy with something that could crater the economy. I think the student loan discussion is something that will definitely drag, but I don't think it brings the economy down to a recession. No, for sure. But, you know, you get enough drags and then at some point, you know, uh, we'll see. Steve, thank right. you very much for now. Appreciate it. Our Steve Leesman reporting. My next guest isn't bearish, but he is concerned investors are turning a good thing into a bad one by chasing overvalued tech stocks here. Here to describe where he's looking instead is David Bonson, chief investment officer at the Bonson Group. Good to see you again, David. 
Good to see you, Kelly. So Dom was highlighting we've got some earnings this week. Uh, Apple, I think Amazon, the biggies. Is that uh, what you mean by be careful? Well, look, Apple is trading at 33 times earnings. It was at about 16 times earnings for most of its big rise up throughout the 2010 decade. So it's far above its own historical multiple. You could argue some of that's justified. Maybe they really can create another iPhone like uh, consumer innovation. But I'd be skeptical that you can follow up on the success of the most successful consumer product in history. I, I think it's expensive. Phenomenal company, unbelievable earnings power, but you just have to really pay up to own it. I think people go, well, I'd be happy to pay 33 times for a company that's going to compound in value the way that Apple does. So tell me the names you're looking at and whether you think they can generate you know, as exciting returns as some of the tech giants seem to be able to do these days. Well, again, I think you have to look at uh, the full market cycle, not the last six months. You had Amazon down last year 60%. You had Facebook down 70 So there's huge volatility investors have to buy and do. And if you look at the NASDAQ, for 23 years, it's compounded at 3% per year. So you're exactly right. You get huge booms that have happened like in the last six months. But unless people are timing their entry and exit perfectly, which, forgive me for being skeptical of their ability to do so, I actually think that the returns are quite subpar when one is overpaying for stocks. And so what we like to do is sort of eliminate some of that risk as much as possible by just focusing on cash flows, and particularly cash flows that come back to us in the form of rising dividends. And is it true that financials are an area that screens really well for you? I mean, financials are coming off their best month since 2016. Yeah, it was a great month in that regard, although it's funny, we get exposure to financials in a little different way than a lot of people think of, because we're so used to thinking of financials as the banks. Right. And even though we do own J.P. Morgan, which has had a great year and is actually a beneficiary of some of the problems in the regional banks, um, the asset managers are really where we have bigger exposure, particularly alternative asset managers. Blackstone, Apollo, uh, Al Rock are, are all in our portfolio. We think there's a huge theme on private credit, but we like fee-based businesses that are not taking all the risk on their balance sheet. So they have huge earnings power without a lot of the volatility that some of the big investment banks have. Yeah, fair enough. And we've, you know, I've heard others, Charlie Babrinskoy, for instance, an, uh, a fan of kind of investing in the financials that way. Uh, maybe instead of having to cherry pick the regional banks that you think, think might make it through okay right now. What about uh, energy, where I was reading some stats earlier from our Nick Wells. All of a sudden, you're seeing some overbought action in some of the main energy ETFs here. Well, I think that there's an interesting thing with this term base effect that comes up a lot when we describe inflation. You know, a number can look good or bad based on where things were a year ago. And they're talking about earnings growth is down in energy because compared to a year ago, it was just up huge, obviously, from the priors. So you're kind of trading base effects there. That's just not how we look at it. Both in midstream and upstream, we just view drastically improved financial metrics, lower debt ratios, lower leverage with far greater earnings power. And really, the commodities have not been a big tailwind. They haven't right. hurt, but oil prices have stayed somewhere between the high 60s and the high 70s all year. And it's, so it's not a commodity story. You have great earnings power. We particularly love midstream because we're just underbuilt mm -hmm. for that infrastructure, for pipelines, for LNG export terminals. And we love the ability 
to get these cash flows that grow year over year. And I mean double-digit growth in, in dividend. And I didn't realize, because I was off last week, but WTI is back above 81. So that's quite a move it's been making, really, in the past just 7 to 10, 10 days. We're about to talk real estate. Before we do, I want to hit your play on this, which is a little unexpected. Uh, it's the mole giant, if I can call it that, Simon Property Group. And maybe we can show a 10-year chart. Why do you like this, and, and why do you think this is going to generate, you know, better than um, decent returns? Yeah, I'm, I'm such a homer for Simon Property that I uh, always win, so we call it a mall giant, because it's a high-end mall giant. So it's not that kind of decrepit mall in a, in a smaller town that's really hurting like a strip mall, right? They own great assets, great real estate. In some cases, they'll end up repurposing. They're doing condos and hotels and entertainment plazas. They just own such great brick and mortar and dirt. And they bought JCPenney basically for free to go repurpose some of these things so they can sell them to Amazon for warehouses. I mean, there's really a lot of optionality in Simon Property. And even apart from that optionality, the net operating income is huge. But Their vacancies me... are extremely low. So we really like the story of Simon Property. We're patient investors around a really high yield there, about 7%. So that might exactly explain, if we can put up that 10-year chart again, the shares are basically flat during that period, technically down 17%. But to you, this is really more, you know, compact. if you're getting 7% a year on top of that, then suddenly you stack that up and that looks, you know, a lot more healthy. And I would point out, too, that the stock is up well over 100% from when it was when they shut down our country. Mm -hmm. And so people thought they're not going back to malls and all of that. Simon Properties skyrocketed higher. They collected far more rents during COVID than anybody thought. And to your point, even in a period of flat stock prices, uh, they have still actually doubled in total return because of the 7% over 10 years. Wow. You know, the high end, what do we call it? the high end mall play? Simon Property Group. There we, there we go. David, thank you very much. There you go. We appreciate your time today. Thanks, Kelly. David Bonson with the Bonson Group. As I mentioned, another key metric for real estate is hitting its highest level since before the pandemic. Good news for renters, but not so much for apartment REITs, which could be in for a rude awakening. Let's get Diana Olick with the details. Diana? Well, Kelly, apartment rent growth nationwide went negative in July for the first time since the start of the pandemic, and that's according to Apartment List. Rents fell 0.7% from July of last year. Might not sound like a lot, but it is indicative perhaps of a bigger slide to come. Rent growth peaked at an astounding 18% annually in 2021. Now, month to month, rents were up very slightly, 0.3%, but that's much slower than historical averages for the month. All right, so why are rents cooling? Because vacancies are rising. Vacancies hit 7.3%, surpassing the previous peak at the very start of the pandemic in June of 2020. We've been warning about new supply coming on, and here it is. There are currently a record number of apartment units under construction and being finished. So let's talk about the REITs that will react to all of this. Names like Avalon Bay, which is set to report earnings later today, Equity Residential, and Camden Properties. Apartment REITs have been among the best REIT performers as other sectors were hit hard by higher interest rates. They may start to feel some pressure, though. Equity Residential reported last week with CEO Mark Perel saying the supply picture in the coastal markets where they operate is still favorable. Demand, he said, it's steady and they are mitigating delinquencies in Southern California. But again, with all this supply coming on nationwide, it's a big question mark. Kelly? No, and it's a great point. There's kind of two sides to the coin, those who benefit and those who won't. <laughs> Diana, thanks very much. We appreciate it. 
Coming up, Molson Coors isn't usually a big earnings name, but with signs that Bud Light has permanently lost market share, its report will be watched a lot more closely than usual. That plus a preview of Caterpillar and Uber, which report in the morning that's coming up in earnings exchange. Plus factory activity in China slowing for a fourth straight month. So why are Chinese stocks rallying? The iShares MSCI China ETF coming off its best week since January, up 9%. We'll dig into it with the chief economist of the China Beige Book, Derek Scissors. The exchange is back after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to The Exchange. The busiest week and the midpoint of earnings season is here with nearly a third of the S&P reporting. We've got the action, the story and the trade on three key names, which we'll hear from before the bell tomorrow. That's in today's earnings exchange. And we'll start with Caterpillar, the industrial bellwether, up more than 10 percent this year and at all time highs as investors say what recession. Certainly in construction, we've got huge spending, supply chain uh, improvement, China, all important things to consider from the report. Let's turn to Seema Modi now with the story on Cat. And Quint Tatro has our trades today. He's Jewel Financial's founder and president. Welcome to both of you. Seema, what are you watching? Well, Caterpillar Kelly is one of the most economically sensitive stocks on Wall Street. And with the prospect of a recession diminishing, the stock has seen sentiment improve. Also, that upbeat report from GE lifting the broader industrial sector. When the company reports earnings tomorrow, though, the real focus will be on inventory levels. Has the company's more efficient supply chain management helped levels normalize? And if so, is that helping its profitability and margin growth going into the future, into the second half of this year? Big topic of discussion will be China. It's one of those names that does have high exposure around with around five to 10 percent of its sales. And when the economic data out of China worsening, we'll really get a key read from CEO Jim Ippleby on just what he is seeing on the ground in China as it relates to residential demand and construction demand as well. The stock nearing an all time high. So expectations are up there going into tomorrow's report, Kel. Yes, they a great point. Quint, are the expectations too high? What would you do with the stock? Yeah, Kelly, this is a tough one because we, we do like the stock. We own it in a dividend model, but the expectations are super high and it's set up really for a sell the news. So I'm going to put a sell on it into earnings. Uh, I, we're not selling any at, at this point, but we're certainly not buying it into earnings. But as Seema mentioned, I mean, inventory levels are, are going to be very important. That's what that's what hindered the story last quarter. But also 75 percent of Caterpillar's business is non-residential and is going to be benefiting from both the infrastructure bill, the CHIPS Act, and and the just tremendous amount of data storage building, warehouses, et cetera, that's transpiring here in the U.S. So we think the company's going to really have good things to say tomorrow, uh, but I do think it's set up for a sell the news. Any pullback, whether it's 
specific to the stock or market related, though, I'd be a buyer of that pullback. All right. 263 up 7% in a month and really only about 10% on the year. Uh, we'll turn Seema thank you to Uber now. That stock has doubled since Jan 1. Still, it's expected to report a loss of about a penny. But as it continues to push towards profitability, Oppenheimer says that could tip the company to be included in the S&P 500, always a catalyst. Remember when Tesla was included? Uh, let's turn to Dom Chu with the story on Uber, Dom. All right. So, Kelly, what we're looking for is the latest sign, perhaps, on what life in America looks like and will look like in a post-pandemic world. What What I mean by that is a lot of things have changed in the wake of the pandemic. A lot of paradigms have shifted for things like office work, dining out versus delivery, other types of things. Uber and its competition had to evolve in a lot of different ways. The growth, though, has shifted from the Uber Eats and food delivery side during the pandemic to growth in mobility and ride sharing because people are traveling more for pleasure. And as things ramp up for travel and commuting as the summer winds down and more stringent return to office policies start taking hold this fall, this winter, any kind of commentary from Uber with regard to ridership trends will be interesting to see. And of course, any updates on legal matters tied to that more overarching question about whether drivers in whatever jurisdiction they're in are actually contractors or full-time employees. That's still playing out in key parts of this country as well. So there's a lot to watch for that are outside just those numbers, Kel. Sure, although the, the profitability issue, Quint, does make the stock look uh, pretty expensive. You know, 164p, whatever you want to call it. I mean, this question about earnings and profitability really looms large. Yeah, I mean, it looks expensive based on the numbers they have right now, Kelly. But if all of a sudden you look forward and this company is expected to turn a, a dollar in you know, earnings in, in the next year, assume, assuming they can get there, all of a sudden we're not so expensive in, in relation to how fast they're growing. But as Dom mentioned, the number of rides is is going to be key that, that we're looking for. We, like Uber, have, have liked it for really close to the lows. It's been one of our better trades since the bottom in 2022. But much like Caterpillar that, you know, is up 65 percent off those 2022 lows, Uber's up 140 percent off of Mm. those 2022 lows. So chasing the momentum is is difficult. So I'm, I'm not adding this name into the earnings report and any market or stock specific decline I'd be adding. I think the stock goes a lot higher. We're just now getting back to where we were in that 19 2019 you know, hyped IPO. The stock's only up a little bit from there. Uh, we think it goes basically back to new highs eventually over time through profitability and cash flow. But it's going to take time. We're a buyer of pullbacks here for sure. Yeah, we, that's a great point. Wasn't 45, I think, the IPO price? It's at 49 now. So it's been a long road to kind of get back here. A, a chance at a fresh start, <laughs> if we will. Kind of like what halftime is scores back to zero, zero. Dom, we turn back to you for some color on Molson Coors, which also reports it's up 35% year to date. Uh, Coors and Miller's, its Miller Light brands have seen some growing market share from the Bud Light fallout. Still, and this is interesting, these shares are still more than half off their highs from all the way back in 2016. This is kind of macro, right, about just beer consumption. So the questions, Kelly, to your point around Molson Coors are being framed even just today by what Dutch brewing giant Heineken just reported earlier over in Europe today. Uh, It cut its profit forecast on lower beer consumption trends and rising costs. Now, Heineken did try at one point to pass along those some of those cost increases to distributors and ultimately consumers. And what happened to a certain degree was a trade down effect where drinkers turned more towards cheaper alternatives and cheaper labels for beer. So for Molson Coors, which is a competitor, what are we going to hear about those bigger trends in beer consumption? 
Is there still premium versus budget-friendly considerations to take into account? Is beer overall still a growth segment? Now, if not, then where? Is it hard seltzers, alternatives? Remember, Molson Coors has the Simply Spiked brands, also the Topo Chico hard seltzers, amongst others. And then what will it do about its pricing strategy a la Heineken? in response to what is now continued inflationary pressure, at least for the time being. So beer is a tough business, whether you're AB InBev, Heineken, or Molson Coors, that's going to be key, Kel. Yeah, just my my sort of uh, cooler observation, Quint, from summer parties is, you know, beer's not popular, hard seltzer is, but everyone's excited about new sodas with, you know, hey, it's only got this much sugar and all these different brands. I mean, I haven't, <laughs> I haven't seen this much excitement for non-alcoholic soda in a very long time. You're, you're right, Kelly, but I will I will say that this out of the three stocks we've mentioned today, this is the only one I'd be a buyer of into earnings. Hmm. I think people underestimate the shift while they're maybe not attracting new customers in the seltzer, you know, soda market. I think they're still taking market share from Bud Light. We saw over the last couple of months a 13 uh, percent month over month Coors Light uptick. The traditional 52-week average is around 5 or 6%. So I think they're going to continue to take market share. That's going to result in, we believe, uh, better earnings to, to the company. And, and I think that, as you mentioned, this one has not had a significant run off those lows. Yes, it's up considerably for the year, but it's certainly not stretched. Uh, we do believe there's a trade here. I think that you could take this trade with a stop below 46. And again, we'd look for a move to highs in this name. That's uh, super interesting. Uh, PE is only about 13 as well, so uh, reasonable. We'll leave it there. Thank you both, Quint Tatro, Dom Chu, for Earnings Exchange. We'll have more on Molson Coors tomorrow on the exchange when CEO Gavin Hattersley joins us after those results cross. Look forward to that very much. 1 p.m. Eastern, right here. You don't want to miss it. Still ahead, SoFi soaring after posting better-than-expected results and raising full-year guidance. The stock's over 11 bucks now. Uh, where's Dan Dolov? Anyway, we've got the highlights from the call, including an update on the company's long-awaited path to profitability that's ahead. And before we head to break, let's get some show and tell where we show you a chart and tell the story. Sweetgreen bouncing back after Friday's weaker-than-expected quarterly results up 8% today. Piper Sandler upgrading the stock to overweight with a $19 price target, saying they expect meaningful improvement in sentiment in the coming months on margin strength. Here's what CEO Jonathan Neiman told Squawk on the street about those results from their first automated infinite kitchen location. In its first first month of operation, which typically we see a lot of ramp happening, we ran a 26% margin at that store. So we see some upside to that over time and do think the, the margin should be significantly higher than the rest of the fleet. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. 
Welcome back to The Exchange. Stocks are fighting to end the month the way that they've largely behaved. We have a 3% rally for the Dow in July so far. This is the last day, obviously. It's only up 11 points right now, though, as the earlier gains have disappeared. It was briefly negative. The S&P's down 3, 45.78. So is the Nasdaq down three points today. Check out Disney, number two in the Dow right now, helping that green after CEO Bob Iger has reportedly brought back two big-name former execs, Kevin Mayer and Thomas Staggs. They will be brought back as consultants. They were once considered heirs apparent to the media giant. So investors may be excited about this move as a sign that Iger is taking his succession plans a bit more seriously. Uh, we're up almost 3% today, but still down 3% since he returned as CEO. You can see that metric there. Meantime, GoodRx is surging after Cowan, TD Cowan upgraded the stock to outperform. Look at that. It's up 35% today over to over $9 a share. Now, they doubled their price target, TD Cowan did, to 12. Uh, that's 80% upside from Friday's close. They say GoodRx's new pharmacy benefit management, PBM partnerships with Express Scripts and CVS. We got that news a few weeks ago, they say that solidifies its place in the healthcare ecosystem, all while generating a new revenue uh, stream for the company. The shares are having their best day since going public in late 2020. But as this chart should always remind us, they're still down nearly 90% from their all-time high of $64. Coming up, China's road to recovery has been a bumpy one, but the country could be starting to turn the corner, according to my next guest. Derek Scissors from AEI and the China Beige Book joins me after the break to explain. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update. A Georgia judge denied an attempt by Donald Trump to stop an investigation into whether the former president interfered in the state's 2020 election. The judge called his allegations of wrongdoing in the probe overwrought and found that there was no legal standing to block the investigation. This is the second ruling against Trump in two weeks. A third petition, petition has a hearing scheduled in August. Iowa is the best state for retirement. A new survey from Bankrate finds the Hawkeye State ranks high in areas such as affordability, cost of living, crime levels, and the quality and cost of health care. Uh, it does not have something Florida has, and that would be beaches, sand, and oceans. Not, but Iowa knocked Florida out of the top spot this year. Uh, it's followed now by Delaware, West Virginia, Missouri, and Mississippi in the top five. How do you like that? Actor, comedian, writer, and producer Paul Rubens, best known for his character Pee Wee Herman, Herman, died last night, according to a post on his Facebook page. The post said he delighted generations of children and adults with his positivity, whimsy, and belief in the importance of kindness. He'd fought a battle of, with cancer for years. Paul Rubens was a young 70 years old. Kelly, back to you. Sorry to hear it. Tyler, thanks very much. Meanwhile, China reporting yet another round of weak economic data overnight. Manufacturing slightly better than expected in July, but has still contracted every month since April. Services PMI also down for the fourth straight month, coming in just shy of a contraction. Chinese leaders are now looking to jumpstart demand. At last week's Politburo meeting, they signaled more support for the troubled real estate sector and pledged to help boost consumption. They stopped short of announcing any tax or spending cuts, though, or large-scale stimulus. And my next guest says if China sticks with their old standby of construction spending, they'll only create a floor and deflation could just be a matter of time. Here for more is Derek Scissors, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Derek, it's great to see you again. Welcome. Thank you. So just clear, because earlier it sounded like maybe you were thinking China's turning a quarter uh, here economically. Do you think that? I mean, I saw that the stocks uh, were up like 9% last week. 
Uh, I think that there are signs of a possible improvement. I would not say it's turning a corner. The trend for the economy is worse um, in terms of you know, July looking worse than previous months. Uh, the signs of possible improvement for me are not stimulus. They're not more borrowing, more construction spending, things like that. They're the signals the government has been giving the private sector that it might let the private sector do more of what it wants to do. Now, those signals don't necessarily mean anything. It could be a fake out. It could be the government again saying, well, we still want you to do what we tell you to do, in which case they will amount to nothing. But that's the hope. The way the economy turns is that the government stops stamping on its own private sector. Although that it seems unlikely, doesn't it? I mean, maybe as a final act of desperation, but does anything say to you that that's a, a path they would really go? Or what would be the signs, let's put it this way, that they're going that route but calling it something else, <laughs> maybe to make it more palatable or what have you? Well, I mean, there, you know, as you mentioned, there, there's just a, a whole raft of measures. And, and usually with China, when they announce 15 measures, it, it means they don't have one that they think will work. But one of the things they've announced buried in there is asking the private sector, especially in technology, to give them case studies of how the private sector has helped the economy and helped society. And, you know, that's a first. They haven't done that recently. Hmm. And if they're convinced by that, they're not bound by it or anything, but if they're convinced by that, they might say, oh, you know, we didn't know that. Why don't you guys do more of this? Now, again, I'm not, I, I'm not guaranteeing this by any means, but it is a, a new development in, say, the last five years. Sure. And again, when we're looking at kind of those gradual signs of a turn and, and that kind of thing. So do you think stocks are right to be a little bit more excited here? Well, I don't. I mean, on the Chinese side, I just don't believe the Chinese stock market is ever right about anything. Um, its peak was in 2007. Wow. So people talking about you know the great rise of China that that's not the way the stock market see the Chinese stock market sees things. You know, it's dominated by by companies that don't honestly report earnings and so on. When you're talking about overseas stocks betting on China, it's really a matter of expectations. We had a lot of people calling for a China boom this year. That has clearly not happened. Now we have the economy weakening. They seem to be betting on a government response. Now, I think there's a chance of a government response. So if you think stocks are, are really beaten down or China exposed stocks are really beaten down, then I think it's a good bet. But I mean, nobody should be thinking, oh, yeah, the economy is going to turn for sure. Right. So that being the case, um, you have to wonder about the global impact. You know, when we, talk, when we debate recession odds here and we say, you know, well, if it were 2007 and China was entering the global market, I could be a lot more excited about the upside than in 2023, where we're we're just trying to figure out if they're going through Japanification. Right. The, the, there is a long-term problem here that only reform can address. So if you think there's major stimulus, meaning borrowing coming, um, that can help you for, for a period of time. And then it ends. And now you're stuck with, well, what do we do now? That would be a very short-term bet on stocks or, or, or other sorts of assets. If you want a long-term bet on China, it has to come through reform. So the only thing that matters is the kind of you know, releasing the hold on private sector signaling and steps that, that we've discussed. Right. So, you know, we kind of spin this forward three months, six months. We're still looking for maybe a big bang effect. Do you think we're ever going to get it? I mean, would there come a point of desperation in which the leadership says, OK, you know, we, we kind of see the numbers and where they're pointing and we have to pull out, you know, the bigger bazooka here? 
Well, I mean, I don't I don't want to contradict myself because I think there's a chance that they will turn to reform, but I don't think the chance is 50 percent. Hmm. I think it's considerably lower than that. And I don't, you know, there are other sorts of tools to me aren't going to work. Uh, you mentioned in the opening construction spending. Young people don't even want those jobs. Right. Um, they've already overbuilt a lot of their infrastructure. Another monetary stimulus. They're heavily in debt. The last monetary stimulus didn't work. So I don't think there's anything coming to the rescue in terms of traditional Chinese stimulus. And, you know, I think the Chinese government has shown a lot of tolerance of what we consider to be a weak economy. They don't seem to be too worried. So that's another thing. Their motivation isn't that high. Totally. I think they'll allow the private sector some steps, but probably not too many. They'll, it'll still be a state-controlled economy, and they'll be fine with what we think is a weak performance. Yeah, and maybe uh, investors be warned if I, if I could rephrase it as such. Derek, it's great to have you today. Thanks so much. Thank you. Derek Scissors from China Beige Book and AEI. Still to come, SoFi's personal loan business breaking records in the second quarter. We'll break down the numbers and hear from CEO Anthony Noto next with the shares of 20% today. And before we head to break, check out shares of the Chinese EV maker Xping, down 14% today after a downgrade to neutral at UBS. The stock saw big gains after that collaboration with Volkswagen was announced last week. But UBS notes the share price has nearly tripled since November and near-term catalysts are priced in and Xping remains vulnerable in a fiercely competitive market. Another Chinese name to the downside today. The Exchange will be right back. Welcome back. Shares of SoFi. And have we not followed this saga month in and month out this year? Uh, they're up 20 percent now to over $11 after strong earnings at a guidance hike. Let's get to Kate Rooney with more on these results and what's going on with their personal loan business, Kate. Hey, Kelly, really strong quarter for the uh, lending side there. SoFi really put a lot of Wall Street's fears to rest in its second quarter results this morning. It laid out a pretty optimistic picture for the back half of this year. It saw really strong loan growth. Kelly, you just mentioned, beat on most major metrics and executives raised full year guidance as well. Loan originations grew 37 percent. Personal loan originations, really a bright spot there, up 51 percent. That was a record for the company. Strong net interest income as well also driving that beat, and deposits were up 26% sequentially. The fintech name appears to be on track for profitability by the end of this year. I spoke to CEO Anthony Noto about that and about the quarter. He said, we set a goal to be profitable in the fourth quarter. We feel super comfortable that we're going to get there. He also highlighted strong margins in lending and more revenue per user, also the company's ability to diversify revenue. Wall Street analysts this morning were overwhelmingly positive on the quarter. Dan Dolov of Mizuho telling me that some of the fears about a lull in SoFi being able to sell loans were put to rest. He also highlighted some of the strength in tech services and that uptick in personal loans and home loans as well. Wow. Also some upgrades on the street we're seeing this morning. So Kelly, we all obviously are using this as a student loan proxy, but but the shares, I mean, this is very different, you know, and when I hear personal loan demand and was way up, I go, well, I mean, I guess that's good for them, but is that a good sign for the economy? Right. As far as the macro backdrop, that could indicate different things about, you know, people needing to take out more loans. They actually have, as far as the, the picture this might paint about the consumer, they're customer base tends to have a higher FICO score. It's something like 740. So it's sort of on the, in the Amex side of things, maybe the higher income, uh, younger tech executive, for example, the income tends to be above $125,000 a year. So Anthony Noto telling me, gives you a, a little bit of a picture of that certain demographic and slice. He said, 
Consumer spending is strong there from what they're seeing. They also have the debit card side of the business. They are factoring in what he called a mild recession for, hmm. for their guidance and still raised guidance with that in mind. The other thing that's been a hangover for this stock and this company has been the student loan moratorium. So student loans are pretty much flat. And that's really been hanging out there for three years or so, ending right. at the end of this year, and should help the business you know, if people need to start paying interest on those loans again. I mean, look at this. The shares are up 150 percent since Jan 1. The other thing that I sometimes wonder about when I see the rates that they're offering, they're one of the highest out there that you can get on kind of those more short-term um, savings and whatever they call it. Um, if that's down the road going to be more of an earnings problem. They didn't show much of an issue yesterday, but, you know, does that start to squeeze? So SoFi is one of the few fintechs that is actually a bank. So they got a bank charter by acquiring a smaller regional bank. The economics for SoFi tend to be a lot better, and it's one of the reasons they can compete on higher rates. Too soon to tell, likely, if it'll start dragging but uh, you know, going forward. But higher rates have actually helped them in terms of the economics and net interest income, whereas a lot of the fintechs that just partner with a regional bank, for example, you think of a Square or a Block, a Robinhood, they don't tend to get as much upside from higher rates. So we'll see how it really affects SoFi going forward. But in the near term, higher rates have absolutely been a boon for them. And that higher yield, when people are searching for yield, has really helped attract some of the deposits. You've seen that growth totally. in, in consumer deposits. So it's helped them in the near term if you're searching for that higher yield to, yeah. as a cons, uh, customer. And I'm sure they'd say, look, if that attracted deposits and then we got people to take out loans on top of that, you know, that's a nice interest margin, then I can see that, you know, being for sure the, the whole the whole idea here. Kate, yeah, thanks. Cross-selling and flywheel effect. Exactly. Thanks, I was going to say I was going to say flywheel. Uh, flywheel. <laughs> I know. We love that. <laughs> Good buzzword, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> but they do. They did it. Uh, still ahead, it's not just big tech getting a boost from AI. We'll talk to the CEO of a REIT seeing pretty big gains this year. That's next on The Exchange. Dow's up 36. Welcome back to The Exchange. When you invest in AI, the first thing that usually comes to mind are chip stocks and big cap tech, but there may be other ways to play this revolution. One company getting a big bounce this year is Digital Realty, up more than 20% since Jan 1. They operate more than 300 data centers worldwide, and they're cloud neutral. They've got Microsoft, Google, they use NVIDIA, among others. Here with me now, Andy Powers, the CEO of Digital Realty. Andy, it's great to have you here on set with me. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Um, this business is, is kind of ingenious in the sense that, I mean, what would you call yourself? A warehouse play? A, a real estate play? I mean, explain this a little bit. We build, own, and operate the physical infrastructure, the foundations for our customers, servers, and their data. Yeah. Supporting 5,000 customers across six continents on their digital transformations. Right. So basically, I mean, I'm going to really put it the way you guys probably don't want, but you know, you've got giant data centers and that kind of thing filled with different customers who use different kinds of technology. And you're more, you're not a utility, but you're operating kind of just th that model of, so how much of this, you know, maintenance or anything like that really falls on you? So we're really focused on the physical infrastructure. So think about your typical commercial real estate on steroids for redundancy and connectivity. Our customers are putting their private workloads as well as the public provi cloud providers landing with us and having seamless connectivity uh, amongst their data sets. So talk to me a little, so we talk about real estate, we talk about AI, I mean, what's the AI play here other than the fact that the more people are using artificial intelligence, the more computing power they need, thus the bigger warehouses, I assume, and the more you know, bigger rent checks you collect. So, so we're in an industry that's been growing for a long time now. The company's almost 20 years old. We've had these called digital transformation waves of demand after demand. Cloud computing was the most recent and the largest. And AI is just hitting the, the scene right now. And I'd still say it's in its infancy. 
is talking about new use cases that typically need higher power densities and cooling features, uh, but a long runway for growth that we're helping support our customers on their digital transformation journeys. Sure. And the only problem with people watching is going, wow, that's a great way to put kind of the picks and shovels for the gold mine type thing is, well, you know, the PE is over 100. You know, people, you've had an amazing year and people have thought this through and realize you're sitting in a pretty nice position. How do you justify a multiple like that? Or what, are, what is the growth you foresee where people could say, yeah, I got in at whatever the price you're in now. And I was still able to look at how they compounded this over the years. Yeah, so we're, first off, we're in the real estate category. We are a REIT, the first data center REIT. So you typically look at a called uh, FFO multiple or AFFO multiple that doesn't deduct depreciation because our assets are, are appreciating over time to normalize. Uh, we've made great strides this year uh, on our customer value proposition. We've had great quarterly signings and uh, second highest new logos uh, just this past Thursday. We've been bolstering our capital sources, uh, made great progress on that front as well. Uh, but we've got more room to run and more progress, and we see a long wave of demand ahead of us uh, that we're looking to step up and serve our customers. Yep, and Jim Chanos, who our audience is familiar with, has been short data centers like yours for probably over a year or about a year now. Interestingly enough, the short interest in the stock looks like it's falling a little bit. It's about 6% at, at recent check. What does that tell you? you no, know, I've been saying we were a show-me story this year. I got into the seated CEO at the end of December. Uh, we said we had to make some progress on our customer value proposition, our funding model, our deleveraging. Uh, in the last two quarters, we made a lot of progress on that, and I think uh, we've, we've shown up with those results and the investors have taken notice. So what do you do as other people presumably start flooding into this space or really looking to kind of, you know, eat away your profit margins and the opportunity here? You know, uh, the pendulum on supply and demand have moved in our favor. Uh, we've seen uh, moratoriums, we've seen power constraints on transmission and generation, NIMBYism, uh, and the kilowatts and megawatts are becoming more and more precious, and the cost of capital is no longer free. Uh, and we've called uh, build a large runway of growth for our customers. We bolster our, our, our capital base, uh, and we think we're going to be able to continue to propel our growth uh, with that backing. Does it get more expensive the hotter it uh, the hotter it gets outside? <laughs> uh, we do. It does get a little hotter with uh, with the air conditioning units trying to cool the servers. But uh, utilities are a pass through in our business model uh, to the end customers, and these are critical mission critical needs for our customers. They can't just turn the data center off uh, when you're hitting 100 degrees uh, uh, Fahrenheit. Give us an example of the range of customers you have. So we have 5,000 customers. So you can think of the largest customers of the large cloud service providers and tech uh, companies ranging to general corporate enterprises and network service providers, major financial institutions. But enterprises ranging called numerous industries from healthcare to retail to manufacturing uh, of all sorts. Do you think there's any danger of there being a bubble of excitement around AI? I mean, you know, I know it benefits you in the long run. I know it's priced in now. But I mean, even for you, do you look at this and go like, OK, this hype cycle, the reality is going to be a lot um, kind of more nuanced to play out? There's no question artificial intelligence is going to change the world we live in, hopefully in, in a better framework for, for all mankind. Uh, I don't think that the hype cycles are related to digital realty and data centers. Uh, we are providing foundational solutions for the AI to happen and the innovation uh, to be unlocked. Uh, it's not just been a, our stock did not jump 100% uh, in, in a day or anything like that. Uh, we have the physical ingredients to make it happen. Uh, and I think we got the wind in our back. And you pass through the utility costs, which is maybe the most genius part of the whole thing. Andy, thanks so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thanks Hope so to much check for back me. in soon. Andy Powers, the CEO of Digital Realty Trust. And that does it for us on The Exchange today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.
It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions.